This and every episode of Project 7 is proudly presented by Renewal by Anderson, the complete replacement division of Anderson Windows. With their exclusive Fibrex material, all of their windows are custom-made, high-performance, energy-efficient, and installed by certified installers. Log on today to request your free in-home estimate and take advantage of their buy one, get one 40% off sale with no money down, no interest, and no payments for 12 months with approved credit. Visit rbamontana.com slash BOGO40. That's rbamontana.com slash BOGO40. Project 7 contains explicit language, descriptions of violence, and discussion of suicide. It may not be suitable for all listeners. Car is right here, and and they come, they they they're shooting, bang 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 bang. They come up to the car. David's behind the car. They think they've hit him. Huh. Yep. They walk around the vehicle. He's not there. And this is what if he gets down here without being seen, he can circle back down to Graves Creek Road, go down Graves Creek towards Superior, and he's gone. This is the obvious way. Right. The unobvious way is down there or up there. Yeah. Over that is Idaho. Yeah. Hmm. This does feel like it's probably the spot. Yeah. From the newsroom of the Flathead Beacon, I'm Andy Viano. And I'm Justin Franz. And this is Project 7. David, don't, go ahead and call the David, are, are, go ahead and disbelieve it. You're, you're about to start something that you have no idea what you're doing. It was the police department, local law enforcement, and local politicians, and kill them all. They were hoping to basically incite the federal government and kicking off this civil war. People were going to die or get hurt, and that's where the whole shit hits the fan. Yeah, he's definitely looking for a place to confront us here. I cannot imagine how terrifying it would be. I received a call and I said, hey... David Berger just popped some shots off at the Missoula County deputies, and it's like, okay, I'm on my way. And I really expected him to be laying on the ground, but as we cleared it, he was gone. At that point, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. It's that mystery that hasn't been solved. It's the Amelia Earhart of our day in Montana, right? Where is David Berger? If he is alive and he's staying out of trouble, I just hope he does that. Should have done that in the first place. Wouldn't be here doing this story, but I don't really care what people think about me, and I don't care what they write in the paper. Friend, you do anything you got to do, okay? Okay. You I'm do any, you, you remember that this whatever happens after this moment will never go away unless it's positive. There are five men on the U.S. Marshals' most wanted fugitive list in Montana. Richard Liggett is wanted for violating the terms of his probation following a conviction for assault with a weapon. Alexander Osterhuber re-entered the country as a deported alien. John Raymer wanted for aggravated assault. Jesse Allen Pearson convicted of being a felon in possession of a firearm. And then there's David Earl Berger Jr., a fugitive from justice, accused of being the mastermind behind an organized effort to overthrow the government. 911, what are you reporting? Uh, we are reporting. We live on Highway 12. Uh-huh. And just before you get to Fort Fizzle, 
Uh, there is an electric, where the electric people came in on a line there, and there has been someone parked there and sleeping there the last five nights or so. When we come by in the yeah, morning no, now, he's there. Oh, yeah. yeah. My name is Larry Schwint. I'm a former Missoula County deputy. We were investigating some vehicle break-ins in Lolo, and I was still training, so I was with Will, and it was kind of a good training thing because that kind of stuff happens a lot. You know, vehicles with windows broken out with rocks. And there was multiple ones that morning. It was a Sunday morning. And so I was learning to do that, you know, getting the information so I could put all the report together and everything, and dispatch got a hold of us. And I want to say it was about 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning and said, uh, we just had a phone call from a lady that lives up Lolo Creek saying that for the last several nights, this gentleman's been camping at Fort Fizzle, which is a day use only area. 410, 396. Okay. <laughs> Stop units 10-6. We got a request for a welfare check at Fort Fizzle, Mount Market 28, Highway 12, for a vehicle that's been parked there for about a week and someone's sleeping in it every day. The vehicle is down there now. It's a blue Jeep Cherokee. All right, well, if it's been there for a week, I'm sure it can wait till the South Union gets done. Gen 4. Um, and so Will said, well, this is perfect. We'll be able to take a little break. We can run out, socialize with this guy a little bit. It's probably somebody passing through. Tell him you can't camp here and send him on his way. And as we pulled up, um, you could see the vehicle parked there, and he was standing outside of it. And I remember he kind of looked up at us, and then as he was walking to the driver's side, um, he was just waving, had an arm in the air, kind of waving. And I'm like, okay, it's weird because I didn't, you wouldn't expect him to know we were coming for him if it was just some everyday citizen that didn't know they were doing something wrong, you know? So as we pulled in, he got in the Jeep and started it and had already started driving. We drove by him, he kind of looked at us, we looked at him, flipped around really quick, and started speeding out of Fort Fizzle, which is not a very big parking lot. So then, as he got up to the stop sign to Highway 12, he ran the stop sign without stopping, took a right, and started speeding down the highway. Well then, the stop sign violation gave me a reason to pull him over. Fort Fizzle with that Cherokee. Uh, and right now I'm attempting to get him stopped in the ditch. Um, be out with him in a sec, hopefully. So when we got behind him, close enough after I ran his plate and dispatch gave me the, the identification, they said it was um, David Berger and talked about his federal probation for weapons violations. I'm sorry, did I copy heat yielding and stopping? Negative. You weren't speaking clearly, 10-9. Negative, he is not yielding. Yeah, lights on, siren on, and he obviously wasn't going to stop. You know, at first you wonder if people notice your vehicle, but I mean that within the first 30 seconds he had dipped, dove off the road, went through the ditch, jumped. I mean, you knew that the guy wasn't going to stop for us. 433, you were covered. Could you turn 9? Still doing about 70 passing cars on corner. 10 4. We're at 6433, we're doing 85 now. Lawn marker 23, um, maintaining his lane. Roads are pretty dry up here. Now we're cruising along at uh, 75 to 85. We're right around the 21. My guess 
take me down some of these uh, dirt roads back here. He's going to try and bust side whole line, thinking that he's uh, free and clear of being able to stay line. That first little bit of that pursuit was kind of odd. But once we got up to Graves Creek Road and took a right and then started driving up Graves Creek Road past the Lumberjack Saloon, we, we weren't doing that fast. I bet we were doing 25, 30 miles an hour maybe. I mean, it was like a Sunday drive. You can see on the video, he's just splashing through puddles and, and there's people outside the Lumberjack Saloon. And as we drive by, he puts his arm out the window, looks at him, waves with his left hand. Um, I remember the couple of people outside like stood up and waved back because they I'm sh- they heard our sirens, so they were kind of watching what was coming down the road anyway. Well, here they see a green jeep with a guy that's friendly and waving, and then right behind him is a patrol car. Well, he was waving at the people at the lumberjack. That was nice of him. I think we're probably gonna have to spike strip him or do something to make him stop. He doesn't seem to have any desire or thought of stopping on his own accord. When we turned on. Wagon Mountain Road, as we're going up Wagon Mountain Road, which really narrows down into like a logging road. There isn't much there. I'd never been up there before. So we were trying to describe to the to our backup kind of where we were headed. The closest unit behind us was probably 20 minutes away. They were still in Missoula. And at one point he stops and puts the vehicle in reverse. Well, I thought, well, we both thought maybe he was going to try to ram us. So as it hits reverse, I jumped out, drew my pistol and kind of laid over the top of the door. And then he put it in drive and took off again. So I jumped back in the car and we got behind him again. 5-9, can you give me any better description of where he went? No, I'll get, uh, I'll get my GPS up and running. There was no road or anything. It just went to the left. Four. Well, hopefully you got your long gun ready too, huh? Oh, yeah. We're ready to rock and roll. It was a place that looked like it had been logged and then had some regrowth. So the pine trees are talking like six, eight feet tall, small ones, small enough where the Jeep was able to climb over some and kind of push its way around others. Ten four. Well, uh, we're just plugging along. I'm just concerned that he's uh, trying to pick a tactically uh, optimum place for him to engage us. You could tell it was a little two-track road that I don't know if he had been on it before, but somebody had driven up to where he was before. In the Dodge Charger, all we could do was stay on the road. And six four five nine. He just went off road, and we've lost sight of him. He's definitely in a tactically advantageous position. I don't think we went maybe 200 yards before I looked up. It was probably 40 yards or more above us. Pretty steep incline on the hill. And the Jeep was parked there. And I could see him standing outside the driver door. And what it looked like to me was he was putting on a shoulder harness. And I remember telling Will, I said, he's got a gun. So Will said, let's go, let's go, let's go. So in the video, you see me get out of the passenger side with the shotgun while I run around the front of the car, thinking that we're going to take cover behind the car. Well, when I get around the front of the car, Will's got his AR-10 rifle, and I have the 12 gauge. And he's like, no, we're going up the hill. We're going to engage him. Um, Go up there and try to get him. As we started getting closer to the Jeep, Will was probably 20 yards away. I was probably 10 yards behind that, and we were probably about 10 or 15 yards apart. I don't know if that was the first time David saw us coming, but he hurried and ran around the front of the Jeep and ducked down on the passenger side. I probably made two or three more steps when he popped over the hood from the passenger side of the Jeep, had both hands on his handgun, laid over the hood so I could just see the handgun, his hands, and the top of his head. And that's when uh, I remember seeing the first recoil. Shots fired. 
Shots fired. As soon as I saw that first recoil, I started shooting with my 12 gauge. I think I shot four rounds as I was walking. And then I remember Will firing as well. Um, right before Will fired, right before we both fired, Will hollered at him like, we will shoot you, put down the gun, we will shoot you. So I didn't know at that point if I had hit him with a slug or if Will had hit him with a round and he had went down or what happened. So in my head, I thought we had struck him. I couldn't believe that neither of us had been shot. Me and Will were right out in the open, open, clear cut. So then Will said, well, let's clear it and took a couple more steps and I could see David through the windshield getting into the vehicle from the passenger door. And at that point, I shot one more round with the 12 gauge that went through the windshield and then he disappeared. So then we just kept going. I, I reloaded a shell and, and then Will went around the back of the Jeep. I went around the front of the Jeep and I really expected him to be laying on the ground and still maybe want to be in a gunfight when we got there. But as we cleared it, he was gone. There was no sign of him around the Jeep at all. At that point, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. Tonight, the Missoula County Sheriff's Office needs your help to find a notorious fugitive on the run. He's 47 years old. He's a former Marine and a backwoods survivalist. Six foot two with brown hair and brown eyes and is about 230 pounds. He was accused of plotting to assassinate local authorities and stockpiling weapons and ammunition, including a machine gun. This is a man who threatened to assassinate local politicians, judges, police officers, said he would go to war with the National Guard and threatened to overthrow the government. David Berger is his name. David Berger. David Berger. David Earl Berger Jr. David Berger. David Berger. David Berger. David Berger. David Berger. David Berger. This sounds like one dangerous guy, maybe the most dangerous man in all of Montana. My name is Justin France. And I'm Andy Viano, and we're reporters for the Flathead Beacon, a weekly newspaper in Kalispell, Montana. In January 2019, we started working on a podcast about David Bergert, a man who led police on a pursuit through a remote fort south of Missoula, Montana, in June 2011. After leading the cops down an old forest road, he ditched his vehicle and jumped out, guns blazing. After getting into a brief shootout, David ran into the woods, never to be seen again. David's story has been told by America's Most Wanted, by John Walsh's The Hunt, and by countless other media outlets fascinated by the man. He's described as a crazed anti-government militia leader who was trying to start a war with Montana law enforcement in the hopes of luring out the National Guard and overthrowing the American government. And we thought that would make a pretty good podcast. So we started talking to people. We interviewed the cops who dealt with David when he was living in Kalispell in the early 2000s, the deputies who chased him through the snow, on foot, before an all-night standoff in 2002. The government officials who wound up on the hit list. The men who joined David's plot. And we talked to Larry Schwint, the last known person to have seen David Bergert alive. We were chasing down what we thought was a thrilling story about a dangerous madman who had gone missing in the mountains of Montana. Was he dead, or was he alive and ready to strike back? But instead, we found a different story. One considerably more complex than previously told. A story about a man the criminal justice system didn't know how to handle. A story about a troubled man who probably needed to see the inside of a therapist's office more than the inside of a jail cell. After more than a year of reporting, we found ourselves asking a new question. 
one that took us back years before that car chase outside Missoula. Did any of this have to happen in the first place? And we also think we found an answer to the question everyone has wanted to know for nearly a decade. Where is David Bergert? Project 7 and all of the journalism that comes from the Flathead Beacons newsroom in downtown Kalispell is made possible in part because of contributions from members of the Flathead Beacon Editors Club. What is the Flathead Beacon Editors Club? The Editors Club was created in 2018 as a way for our readers to support the important work we do. Remember, each and every issue of the Flathead Beacon and everything at flatheadbeacon.com is free, but that doesn't mean it's free to produce. In fact, good quality journalism is expensive. But for as little as $5 a month, Beacon Editors Club members can help make our work possible. And while $5 doesn't sound like much, taken together, those contributions can do a lot. Like help us crisscross Western Montana for over 15 months to bring you this podcast. And being a member of the Editors Club comes with some great perks, like bonus episodes of Project 7 and one of our popular Glacier National Park posters. Want to learn more? Head over to BeaconEditorsClub.com today and sign up. David Earl Berger Jr. was born on January 19, 1964, in Dayton, Ohio. My name is Jamie Rogers. I am a freelance journalist from Missoula, and I wrote about David Berger in 2013. Jamie's story, titled The Two David Bergerts, was published in the Missoula Independent on June 18, 2013. It closely chronicled David's life and the two main stories that had been told one by law enforcement and another by David and his friends, stories that painted two vastly different pictures of the man. And part of that picture came from David's mother, Phyllis Richards. From what Phyllis told me, it sounds like his mom, uh, I believe, was in the Air Force for a while, and his dad uh, was a salesman of some kind and uh, struggled with alcohol and brought that into their home, and uh, it ultimately led to Phyllis and him getting a divorce. And Phyllis moved David and uh, her other son to Colorado. In Colorado, David had what appeared to be a pretty typical childhood. Living in the rural town of Victor, he was a Cub Scout and Boy Scout and fell in love with the outdoors, spending his free time hunting, fishing, and hiking through the woods. School was another story. I don't think he was a great student. I don't think he took to school. Um, I think he was frustrated by the sort of parameters of school. And he wanted to get to what he thought was more important work, which was protecting people. And he joined the military, I think, as soon as he could. And it did not go well. So, yeah, I think leading up to that point, though, by all accounts, he was a pretty normal teenage kid who didn't love school. And wanted to get on to bigger and better things. David dropped out of high school and joined the Marines before his 18th birthday, but that enlistment would be rocky and short-lived. 
In a federal courtroom years later, a prosecutor would trace David's lifelong pattern of bad behavior back to his brief military career. David's commanding officer wrote in his file that, quote, David has by his bearing and attitude and disciplinary record proven his unsuitability for any further military service and has been the subject of numerous formal and informal counseling sessions without positive effect on his behavior. The commanding officer went on to recommend David be relieved of his duties as soon as possible. David would always defend his service record and pointed to his successful stint as a military police officer. He said that he had, quote, no disciplinary problems at all, no infractions of any kind, and that he did his very best. To his family, David pointed to the mistreatment he endured from others as the reason his military career did not end the way he hoped. Phyllis told Jamie that a military doctor called her son a mama's boy and that he was bullied by his drill sergeant. David's fellow Marines didn't treat him much better. I think he was in the military for just maybe less than two years, um, not very long at all. And he, the story I have heard is that a drill sergeant, and it's not hard to imagine David being difficult with drills. You know, he's had a problem with authority his whole life. We see that again and again in his story. And I think that probably he was like that in the military. And the story I've heard is that he was driven out into the desert and basically they beat the crap out of him and left him out there. And then he ran away and he didn't go back to the base. Uh, and I think ultimately went home and was disarmedly discharged for that. David and his mother would appeal that decision to a U.S. congresswoman named Patricia Schroeder and were successful, getting his release changed to an honorable discharge in 1981. But the future David saw for himself had already derailed. Back in Colorado, David was drinking heavily and totally aimless. A young man who wanted to dedicate his life to service and fancied himself as a hero had been told, and not for the last time, that his services were not needed. David briefly re-enrolled in high school, but he dropped out a second time and moved to Montana briefly in search of the quiet outdoors that had always calmed him. But he was still drinking too much and still without purpose, so he moved back in with his mother, who was now living in the small town of Rogersville, Alabama. It all would eventually lead to a series of poor decisions that would bring David in contact with the legal system for the first time. It's really like a a silly story. I mean, I don't think he was doing much of anything except for drinking and brawling and messing around when he was in Alabama. And one night, and I assume he was just rip-roaring wasted and broke into a trailer, went to the fridge. Uh, I don't know if the sandwich was pre-made or <laughs> if he put one together <laughs> and uh, sat down at the table and ate it, and then uh, the residents came home. He heard their car out front, and he took off, and he left his gun. He had a handgun with him, and he left his gun on the table, and the next day, or maybe a couple of days later, called the sheriff's department or the police department and asked if they <laughs> had found his gun, and he got arrested. <laughs> <laughs> As silly as the story might have been, David was still arrested on January 28, 1985, and sent to the Colbert County Jail, where he awaited trial on a felony charge of burglary in the first degree, even though the only thing he stole from the trailer was a sandwich. 
David's attorney petitioned the court to grant him youthful offender status, a legal protection in Alabama that would have cleared David's record after his punishment was served. The attorney also asked the court to review David's mental fitness, writing, quote, that Mr. Burgert is not competent to stand trial at this time, that he is presently incapable of assisting or helping in his own defense, and is in fact so despondent that there are fears for his sanity and life. A psychological evaluation was ordered the next day. The psychiatrist who first saw David observed a man who was despondent and nervous. He wrote that David, quote, admitted to suicidal thoughts and questionable plans. He felt guilty, hopeless, and worthless. David was admitted to a medical facility and briefly given a mood-stabilizing drug, but returned to the county lockup a few days later. Just two weeks after that, David's attorney wrote to the court, this time saying that, quote, the defendant has the present capability and attitude of a suicidal person. The lawyer also believed that David would take his own life if given the opportunity. Upon readmission to the medical facility, doctors noted that David had, in fact, attempted to take his own life. His sort of disagreeableness with everybody through his life suggests to me that there was... He's not just uh he was, a, I do believe that he had like a good heart and everything, but he just could not get out of his own way. And I think um, talking about his mental state, I think that he was ill. I really do. David did not dispute that assertion. In a separate court filing in 2007, David agreed that he suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. He went on to say that when he was off his prescribed medications, he battled suicidal thoughts, severe anxiety tremors and shakes, severe teeth grinding, and loss of sleep. A psychiatrist in 2003 diagnosed David with depression and paranoid personality disorder and attributed it to a distrust of authority dating back to his time in the military. Looking back today, it's possible to draw a line from David's early insubordinate and irresponsible behavior all the way to the shootout in 2011. In the intervening decades, David's paranoia would intensify, his behavior would become more erratic, and his interactions with law enforcement would only serve to feed his fears. But in Alabama in 1985, there was a chance to stop all of this before it started. A chance to get David treatment to handle him with compassion and care. And like what happened over and over again throughout David's life, and like happens almost every day in the overly punitive American justice system, it was an opportunity that would be missed. The judge in Alabama ruled David was not mentally incapacitated at the time of the crime, that he was competent to stand trial, and that he did not qualify for the youthful offender diversion. So David pled guilty to burglary in the first degree, was sentenced to 12 years in prison, and would carry the label of convicted felon for the rest of his life, all for breaking into a trailer and eating a sandwich. It's really heartbreaking. I mean, the guy needed, he needed help for sure. And it's the kind of help that it's like really resource intensive and unfortunately unless you come from some kind of privilege or you happen to have somebody with resources who really really cares about you you're not going to get it and you in some cases are just going to be deemed uh, a crazy person and that's definitely what happened to him. 
If you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of suicide, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week by calling 800-273-8255. And the National Crisis Text Line can be reached by texting 741-741. Both resources are free and confidential. Next time on Project 7. I need a fit, and I need to get shit off my face. I need some medical treatment now. He had an authority issue, obviously. And they had a problem with him being a big old grizzly bear of a man, and it was just a wing measuring contest, I guess. You know, in the years that followed, I always wondered about that, whether or not that just made him angry enough that that's where he developed his hatred for all of us. David called her the next day, and... In her words, he was crying like a baby. When you're an officer on the street, you're cautious anyway. But if, if you know there's a problem with a certain person, you, you are a little more cautious than you are normal. Some of these guys had true, whether they were founded or not, fears that the cops were out to kill them or harm them. And Dave was one of those. He literally felt like the sheriff's department was out to kill him. I was in the midst of investigating what was going on when David showed up. They just arrested David. David would just listen to me for once in his life. He'd have a lot more. It's a ridiculous situation, right? Why are the cops really, there's stuff that, real crime's going on. I cannot breathe, and I cannot get sick in my stomach. Uh, my face is on fire, and I cannot breathe. Well, you sound like you're breathing to me, Dave. Project 7 is a production of the Flathead Beacon in Kalispell, Montana. The show is written, produced, and edited by me, Andy Viano, and Justin Franz. The editor-in-chief of the Flathead Beacon is Kellen Brown, and the managing editor is Myers Reese. Music in this episode is composed by Jeremy Reinbolt and performed by Nick Spear, Rebecca Spear, Halliday Quist, Jesse Allman, and Jeremy Reinbolt. Marco Forcone is the audio engineer for the Project 7 theme. Our ad music is Blippy Trance by Kevin McLeod and used via Creative Commons License 4.0. The Project 7 logo was designed by Dwayne Harris and our website was built by Patrick Sappington and Pierce Ware. Special thanks to Flathead Valley Community College, the Montana Human Rights Network, the University of Montana School of Journalism, JusticeProductions.net, and the entire staff of the Flathead Beacon for their support of this project. And a reminder that this and every episode of Project 7 is brought to you by Renewal by Anderson, the complete replacement division of Anderson Windows. To learn more, visit rbamontana.com. That's rbamontana.com. Project 7 is made possible by members of the Flathead Beacon Editors Club. Member contributions help pay for all of the Beacon's reporting, and help secure our future as the Flathead Valley's most trusted source of local independent journalism. Members also get access to great perks, including weekly bonus episodes of this podcast. Check out our website at project7pod.com. That's project7pod.com to see documents, videos, and more related to this and every episode. And find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at project7pod. If you know the whereabouts of David Bergert or want to get in touch with us for any other reason, send us an email at project7 at flatheadbeacon.com. Thanks for listening. Project 7.